I bring you greetings from another country. Uh, Shane and I and Adam had the privilege of being down in New Orleans this past week for the Southern Baptist Convention with just about 19,000 people there. And uh, it was great. I don't know if you get a chance, but it was amazing for us to have been there and to have the man in charge of what's called NAM, the North American Mission Board. His name is Kevin Azell stand before all of the messengers from Southern Baptist churches from across the United States and actually talked about Calvary Baptist Church and Mile One Mission and talked about Matt Leahy and Kilbride Community Church. And uh, we had a number of people then come to us afterwards. And so I want you to know, once again, Calvary, we don't do this alone. We don't do this in a vacuum. So many people love on us and are praying for us. And I would ask you to continue to pray for Brother Matt. Pastor Matt is on a plane as we speak, headed back this way. He said goodbye to Ruth and the kids. They're going to stay a little bit longer so Ruth can have a bit more time with her family. It's their first time back in Australia in almost five years. And so, but Pastor Matt is on a plane and he will be back here. It'll be the longest Monday ever for him because he's coming back in time. So this Monday will be close to 36 hours, maybe even a bit longer. So pray for him as he lands tomorrow. But again, I wanted to say happy Father's Day to all of you that are dads. And Father's Day, if I'm going to be honest, is a bit of a weird day for pastors. It's a really weird one. And some of that is because if you actually look at the statistics of dads and fatherlessness, not only in Canada and the United States, but indeed around the world, the truth of the matter is, as dads, we're not known for our good job. Fatherlessness, believe it or not, is almost 20% in Canada year to date. It means one in five children doesn't have a dad. And that is just staggering. And that number goes up in the United States. It goes up even further. In South Africa, it's almost 50%. And so here we are, as the stats for what happens to children coming from fatherless homes is also staggering. If you wanted to know about suicide and high school dropout and drug use and prison and all these things. So what happens then in a lot of churches, both in Canada and around the world, is that many Father's Day sermons are times to just drill the dads and tell them they need to step up and do a better job. And of course, that is true. All of us as dads should step up. But if I wonder, and I have wondered even this past week, if using Father's Day as a let's nail dad day is actually the best way to approach it. Because I don't think it is. And adding to this issue of unbalance and struggle with what to do is the fact that Mother's Day is a far bigger deal than Father's Day. In recent surveys, 25% of folks said that it's way more important to celebrate mom than dad. One in four. And the stats on money spent, cards bought, phone calls made, bear that out. But should as pastors, we simply pass on Father's Day altogether, give the obligatory nod and move on, Or should the church and pastor make it seem like Father's Day is fine and preach how great it is when we know that many of the statistics tell us it's not? In fact, and what might surprise some of you, if I'm going to be honest, is that there are not a ton of great dad examples in the Bible. 
from Genesis to Revelation, you'll be hard-pressed. I mean, there's Job for sure. He stands out as one of the best. Joseph is there too. In the New Testament, there's this guy named Jarius. Jarius did everything right. When his daughter was on the brink of death, he turned to Jesus for help. But the reality is many men in the Bible who are dads, well, let me just say it. They're weighed and found wanting. Then on top of all of that is the challenge of preaching Father's Day if you yourself are a dad because you struggle with the idea of being a little self-serving. The temptation can be as a pastor who's also a dad is, should I pick out a passage that I'm not struggling with so I can talk to all the dads that are struggling and at least for a little bit look like I've made it? Or do I pick a passage and a subject that allows me to preach to myself, and all of you guys are wondering, well, why is Steve just hammering on himself on this Father's Day? And that, my friends, is actually why it is good and consistent and good for you to be a part of a church where we just consistently, spirit-filled, ledly preach the actual Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. If you want to see just how often we can actually see the Holy Spirit move, if you want to see signs of the timing of the Holy Spirit amongst us and the hearing of God's Word just when we need it, look no further than when we read God's Word regularly like Vina did for us in Hebrews 13, and we preach through God's Word regularly. So with that in mind, take your Bibles and let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I want to read verses 11 and 12 as we continue in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We're going to find ourselves, if you're a visitor, I've been preaching through the gospel of John. I've called it Conversations with Christ. And we're going to look at this high priestly prayer of verses 11 and 12. And this is what Jesus prays in the, Gar- in the Kedron Valley. He's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's hours from the cross. And here he is with the 11 disciples because Judas is left to betray him. And you'll notice, by the way, this is the second petition of Jesus in this prayer. It is the first one he offers for the disciples. All right, listen to what he says. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Now, if you mark in your Bible, I want you to highlight or underline or make a note of these two words. Holy Father, and I want you to realize it's the only place in the entire Bible where you will find those two words together. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. And I want you to marinate in the ramifications of that. Jesus wants his disciples, thus the church, to be as united as the Trinity. He says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Then he says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And again, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This is where Jesus, our Lord and Savior, this is where Jesus, our Messiah, who's only hours from the cross, remember, less than 12 hours from the cross, he's with his disciples, he's just washed their feet. If you turn back to chapter 13, he's just celebrated a meal with them, he's instituted the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus has told Judas to go do what was in his heart the whole time, to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver with a kiss. Jesus has watched his disciples, their confusion and their fear. He's listened to and answered their questions. But now, now in John 17, he prays. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. He asks God to give him the strength to follow through and be obedient with what the plan was before the Trinity ever said, let there be light and God created. But now in verses 6 to 19, Jesus is going to pray for the disciples particularly, and he prays for every one of us who are sons and daughters of God inspirationally. But in verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes his petition. He asked God for something specific. And so, here we are. Father's Day of 2023. A culture that is confused. Dads are often made fun of, or dads are absent. Preachers work with, should I preach on it or shouldn't I? But I would say, what if? What if I and we simply submit to God's Word and the Spirit's timing that we should be right here, right now, at this passage, on this day, in this time of the year. Because if there was any greater way to think about fatherhood, if there was any greater way for me to explain fatherhood, then it is not, is it not to look to God as Father? If you want to understand fatherhood, look no further than God himself. For us to see Jesus' example of biblical manhood, to help us all, whether you're here this morning and you're young or old, whether you are single or married, whatever your quote-unquote status is of life, whatever your view of God, whatever your experience with church, whatever you're walking through right now, as a dad... Are you here this morning and can you say, I don't know if I feel adequate. I don't know, Steve, if I'm up to the task. Well, if you would wonder that and doubt it, I I want you to know I see that hand and welcome to the club. I've been a dad for over half my life. I'm a grandfather to six beautiful boys and girls. And every day I wrestle with, am I adequate enough? Am I up to the task? Are you here today without a dad? Are you tuning in online and you'd say, well, Steve, you don't understand. I've had a bad dad. I don't have a father figure. Dads, are you here this morning or online and you'd say, Steve, you don't get it, man. I'm tired and I'm weary. Things are not turning out the way that you shot they should. Moms, are you here this morning and are you feeling like this is all on you and you don't know how to get your husband to step in and to step up? Whoever you are today, by the way, whatever your situation is today, John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12, this prayer, this day, this service is just for us all. This is God speaking to us because today we're gone back in time a little over 2,000 years. We're somewhere between the Kedron Valley and the cross and Jesus prays and realize what he's praying. He's between betrayal and death. He's feeling the crush of sin and the weight of God's holy wrath and Jesus prays with words of commitment but acts of cowardice by the disciples and yet Jesus prays.
And today, this Father's Day, dads, we will learn how to example Christ to our families. Moms, you will learn how to trust God with your marriage and the father of your children. Kids, you'll learn to see God as father and how to pray for your earthly dad, whoever, wherever, and whatever quality he may be. Single men, you'll learn to lean on this prayer of Christ for you and see how Jesus would call you to example him in manhood and fatherhood. Single ladies, yes, Beyonce, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all right? You'll learn this morning of a Savior who loves you and the type of man to look for in relationships. You see, if you want to find relationship, if you want to find the meaning of life, if you want to find value and purpose, if you want to find whatever your situation is, it's right here in God's Word. Yes, it's true. We're not going to deny it. We all have something to see and learn from these two verses. Because today we learn, are you ready for this? Here's what I want you to take home on this Father's Day. You will learn about, we will learn about the protective prayer of Jesus. I want you to leave here and know that Jesus right now is protectively praying over you. But here's his request for unity among his disciples. I want you to notice, number one, I only had two points, pretty easy. We see Jesus' prayerful request in John 17, 11. Notice what he says, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them. And then secondly, he prays in verse 11, Holy Father, unite them. That's his prayer. Keep them and unite them. Now before I go any further, I don't think there's not a dad in the room There's not a dad tuning in online, wherever you may be, who wouldn't pray this and want this for their family. I don't think there's not a day goes by I don't pray to Jesus and say, oh God, keep my family and unite my family. Is there anything more painful than when you see parents ripped from their family? Is there anything more tragic than when you view families that are at odds with each other and are not unified. Can we not relate to Jesus Christ here? Is there not anyone else in the room who wouldn't want this for their family? Oh God, would you keep my family? Would you unite my family? And why did Jesus pray for this? After all, this is his first petition for the disciples. Bruce Maline says this, Jesus' relationship to these men is about to change in a fundamental way. Look at what he says. He says, I'm going to remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. The departure of Jesus is a crisis for the disciples. It's not just that he would go die on the cross. It's that he kept saying to them, I'm going to leave. Prompting Jesus' prayer. And you know what? For those of you that are parents, Debbie and I on Wednesday, we get to go watch our firstborn grandson graduate from kindergarten. And we went out yesterday and got him a, a little cool outfit. And we got him a shirt that has all the little uh, boats on it. And we got a bow tie that's blue with the matching anchors on it. And we got, like, listen, like Ginky pimped out my grandson, all right? I did that yesterday. And I'm so excited to go watch that. But I remember his first day. Do you remember what that was like, moms and dads, when you brought your children that first day to daycare or that first day to school or that first time you dropped them off to soccer camp and they love you and then you go, now mom and dad are going to leave and they're like, what, what, what? That wasn't part of the deal. 
the disciples here, Jesus has told them, I'm leaving. And they don't like it. They have separation anxiety. And he says, in this time of his absence, covering both the days until Easter Sunday and the much longer period afterwards when he will no longer be a tangible presence. Marcus Rainsford, one of the, who won, one of the most comprehensive commentators on John chapter 17, has noticed this and has written, the Lord does not ask for riches for them, if you notice. He says, Father, keep them. Father, unite them. He doesn't say, Father, make them rich. He doesn't ask for honors or worldly influences or great uh, treatment, but he does most earnestly pray that they may be kept from evil, separated from the world, qualified for duty, and brought home safely to heaven. Now, children, I want you to realize this here and online. Have you ever noticed how often what you think mom and dad should do for you or pray over you is radically different from what they actually do for you or what they actually pray for you? And have you ever wondered why? If I asked my kids when they were kids, what do you want daddy to pray for you? They'd ask me for things like that. We can have ice cream for breakfast every morning. And that is not what their dad would pray. Why? Because as parents, we know and see things our kids don't. They've, we've lived life more. We have the scars to prove it, tragically. And oh, how we hate the term. Don't we hate the term in this culture? When How many times have we said, don't, do, uh, don't uh, say this, do as I say, not as I did. Right? We love to call out the hypocrisy of that. Oh, I can't stand it when people say, do what I tell you to do. And then they go, but that's not what you did. But wait, 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 wait. We think that when parents say, I want you to do what I tell you to do and not as I did, we think, man, mom and dad are such hypocrites to tell me to stay away from this or that or don't do that. And you might even find a way to say that that's true, but it comes from a heart of truth. You see, it's funny, isn't it? We say that saying, but we actually live by it in just about every other area of life. If you've met someone who has done any kind of docking. I know we're moving into the summer, and I promise you, those that are from not Newfoundland, summer will come one day. I promise. But for those of you that have, have had sea dews or boats or anything, you put it in, into a, a pond of water, and then you, you wonder, where are the rocks? Where are the shallow parts? And, and someone comes and says, oh, listen, man, love your boat, but listen, don't go here. Don't. I went there, tore the bottom completely out of my boat. Ruined. But we don't say, well, you're such a hypocrite to tell me not to go there. No, we thank that person, right? So kids, when your parents often say, I don't want you to do this, and you find out that they did it as a kid, they're not being a hypocrite. They're trying to save you from the hurt that they've experienced. This is what Jesus is trying to help us understand. You see, but with Jesus, he can pray this, and it's never do as I say, not as I did. But when Jesus prays this, it's do as I say, because I want to spare you from what I will go bear for you. Jesus can pray this because he will go bear the sin and the failures and the mistakes that every one of us will commit. You see, the reason parents will often want more for their kids, want to stop their kids from doing these things, is because we've learned the hard way. We've learned the hard way, and we're desperate to spare you the hurt. And it scares us and the pain. And Jesus bears the scars. Jesus bears the hurt and the pain so we can be saved. So when Jesus prays, it's as if J.M. Boyce points out, 
He prays for soul prosperity because that's the best prosperity. And in truth, it transcends everything. Christ's prayer in John 17 is captivating because it shows us the kinds of prayers Jesus is offering for us now in heaven. The overall theme of chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, in which Jesus prays for his disciples, is that his disciples should properly relate to one another in a non-believing world. And we don't have to argue the importance of this topic. I don't think i got to prove this to you, do I? If there is one area in which we often feel inadequate or are constantly being reminded of our shortcomings, it's in the area of personal relationships. Aren't they a struggle? My dad's a pastor, and since it's Father's Day, I might as well talk about how he's a good dad, and he is. The greatest gift my dad has ever given me is a good view of God. Because my dad's a pastor, I've often called my dad to, quite frankly and honestly, whine and complain about being a pastor. I'll call up my dad and tell him about, it's tough, dad. And you know what my father will say? In love, he says, well, welcome to ministry. And then he'll say, oh, Stephen, pastoring would be easy if it wasn't for the people. (laughs) And that's not meant to be hard on you because I'm a person too. And I think my father would say, oh, fathering fathering would have been easy if it wasn't for you as my son, right? But you see, I think we can all agree that personal relationships are difficult. We should be struck by this way that Jesus does this now because look at what he says in verse 11. He says, holy father, keep them in your name. Now, I have to be honest. I was down in New Orleans walking through unbearable heat, and I know this is not the weather we would choose, but trust me when I tell you, 40-plus degree weather with 100% humidity is not fit for man nor beast. I could not wait to get back here because you know what? You can put more clothes on, but you can't take your skin off, all right? And so as I was in the beauty of air conditioning, appreciating this particular passage, this, this expression, Holy Father, amazed me and mesmerized me because Jesus, Jesus addresses God as Holy Father, and it's the only place where it occurs in the entire Bible. And I don't think I've got to explain or convince us all that God is holy. I think if you're here at church, you've been told or you notice as you've read your Bible, the Bible speaks of God as holy all the time. In fact, the only attribute of God where it is said that God is not just holy, but he's holy, 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 is this idea of holiness. In Isaiah and in Revelation, we're told over and over again that God is holy, holy, holy. But we should be struck by the powerful holiness of God. I get often asked as a pastor, why or how could a loving God allow that bridge to collapse or that hurricane to blast this or that tragedy to happen? How could a loving God allow this to happen? And yet, I'll be honest, I think the better question for all of us in humanity would be to say, how does a holy God not allow every bridge to fall? He's holy. He's without sin. 
We read in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire. We see in the whole of the Bible, whenever a human being comes before the living God, and I mean every time, what is the reaction? That human being falls on their face with fear and reverence. These are the reactions of humanity to a holy God. And yet here in John 17, Jesus takes the almighty descriptor for the almighty God of his holiness and puts it with the most beautiful familial name you could put to it and says, Holy Father. You see, because of Jesus, you and I get to come to a holy God, and now we can say, Our Father. Because of Jesus, you and I can come to a holy, holy, holy God, and we get to say, Abba, Father. Father. Have you ever thought about the audacity of calling God Father? If I call him God, I speak truthfully, amen? Amen. If I call him Lord, I speak submissively. If I call him King, I speak servantly. But if I dare call him my Father, I speak with a brassy audacity that is shockingly familiar and intimate, or at least it seems that way. How can we dare call the master of the universe Father? How can we dare call the one who controls heaven and hell Father? How can we call the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one Father? You can almost hear heaven say, who do you think you are? It's a difficult thing to imagine a more audacious act than to stand as creation before the creator of the world and call him Father. I mean it, and not only do I mean it, but to act and speak as a child acts and speaks before a loving and doting dad, it's both shocking and it's exhilarating. It's beautiful beyond words, but here's the secret. It's really not that audacious. It's actually not some brassy boldness that we work ourselves into, nor is it gained by swallowing a a bottle of liquid spiritual courage and go, I'm going to try this out now. I'm going to go up and I'm going to say, Father... To call God Father is simply to live in the space which Jesus created. It's to move from residing far from God as his enemy or on the other side of town from him as a stranger or down the street as an acquaintance or in an adjoining house as a servant and to move into our own bedroom as a child and his family, to wake up in the morning and see our father sipping a cup of coffee and saying, good morning, son, good morning, daughter, and we respond, good morning, dad. You see, we live in this house. When we move into the room built by Jesus, we inhabit the home not merely of a master or lord or king, but the one who's given us his name and made us his own now and forever. Our Father, Holy Father, two of the most amazing words ever uttered. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to learn Christ. What does that mean? What other religion invites you to learn a person? He really is the heart of everything for us. We're invited to know and learn him. Is that not amazing? Now, I wish I could take credit. I didn't write a word of that. I just quoted to you from a Jewish rabbi who got converted to Jesus Christ and came to know God as Father. Do you know him? Do you know him? 
Jesus says, I'm coming to you, Lord. Jesus is about to be united again in Trinitarian might and strength with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And church, you need to realize that we can't focus on just the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've also got to see his ascension. You see, in John 17, when Christ prays this prayer, he notice he talks both in the past, the present, and the future as if they're all the same. Why does he do that? Because only God could and can do it. And because we cannot miss the bursting joy of Jesus as he readies himself, John 17 gives us the backdrop of Hebrews 12 when the writer says, who for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, the prayers, he says, Christ, after defeating the devil on the cross, raising from the dead, spending 40 days on earth, not only ascended into heaven as a triumphant conqueror and God's beloved son, he also knew that he was taking the requests of this prayer with him into heaven as he continued his ministry as prophet, priest, and king. So when I prayed, or when Jesus prays, I am coming to you, his continuing work of the objects of his current intercession wasn't as implied. So Jesus is still praying, God, Father, God, keep them, unite them today. John MacArthur said it so beautifully. Remember last week? In the face of his absence in sin-bearing, through only for a few hours, Jesus proceeded to ask the Father to take up the protection of those he had given to him. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name must mean something to us, right? Jesus seems to be praying that there is power in the name of the Lord. We are called children of the King. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to all the churches, it tells us that God gives those a name. Jesus prays that the disciples will remember the power of God's name because it's in the power of God's name that they will cast out demons. It's in the power of God's name that they will walk by faith and not by sight. But ultimately, they will have salvation and offer and preach salvation in Jesus' name. You remember what the Luke said in Acts chapter 4? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation, now listen to this, in no one else. Why? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this is why Paul says what he does to the Philippians. When he tells the Philippians to have this mind also, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When he describes what Jesus went through, though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And how did he do that? By taking the form of a servant. He became like us, being born in the likeness of men and women. And being found in human form, he, Christ, humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what's the result of that? Therefore, God hath highly exalted him, and did what? And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? 
So this is why he says, Father, keep them in your name. The point of this is this. Are you ready for this? Once saved by Christ through his death and resurrection, we will always be saved by Christ through his ascension and intercession. So you can go to bed tonight and you can sleep easy that you're a Christian because you can't save yourself and you don't keep yourself. You are saved by Christ, kept by Christ, and Jesus prays for you in his name. That's something we're celebrating on Father's Day. The point of this, my friends, is this. Jesus saves us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Listen to God's word now. Jesus will keep us and kept us for what? Notice what he says. Keep them unified. Now think about that. He says he wants them to be unified as he and God the Father are unified. How is the Trinity unified? They are of unity of the same mind and purpose and goal. But now consider about whom he prayed this. Because it wasn't like these guys got along or agreed all the time when they were with Jesus. There's a reason why these are called a motley crew. But who kept them in line and who kept them in unity? When James and John were trying to sidle in and say, hey, Jesus, when you get to heaven, we want to be on your right hand and your left hand. And even, even their mom prompted them to go do that. And everybody else was mad. Even when Peter seemed to have the inside scoop and other guys would go and when they would disagree with each other and they would fuss and fight, who was the one that always kept them aligned and kept them unified? Who was it? Jesus, right? Who was it? All right, again, one more. Who was it? There we go. It was Jesus that kept them. And have you noticed that from Acts chapter 2 all the way to Revelation 21, you still have Christians disagreeing and at times not getting along? I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't come down in chapter 2 no more than when you get to chapter 6 and they're already disagreeing to the point where it almost splits the church. But what keeps them in line? What helped them fight for the truth? First of all, it was Scripture. Second, it was the indwelling Holy Spirit. But ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. That is why Paul starts every letter with, I am called to be a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, saved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to you who are called. If you're reading 1 Corinthians with us, that's the opening lines of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If we truly believe we belong to God, because of Jesus, and if we truly believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, and if we truly believe that the Spirit of the living God is inside of all of us to lead us and convict us and point us to truth, and if we truly believe that this book, the Bible, is the inspired, living, breathing Word of God from God to tell us everything we need to know about ourselves and the world, if we believe 2 Timothy is true, that all Scripture is profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped of every good work. Then truly, Jesus' prayer is and will be answered. Our Holy Father will keep us, and he will keep us unified around his name and his name only. I was down at the Southern Baptist Convention 19,000 people, men and women and families of every walk of life. I saw pastors dressed in linen suits with vests and ties or bow ties and top hats and walking canes and a big feather coming out the hat. 
I saw pastors in tie-dye tank tops and Bermuda shorts and flip-flops. I saw pastors in full three-piece suits. And then I saw the cool pastors like me (laughs) with their cool little shirt and their drip sneakers. I have drip, by the way. I found out. I've got drip, and that's a cool thing because it's all about the sneakers. And I got some cool sneakers. But I watched them disagree. I watched them argue. I watched them articulate different points of view. But ultimately, what will keep them together is Jesus Christ. This idea of unity is not uniformity. This idea of unity is not one guy gets to set the agenda and then you all follow it. This unity is that we will all submissively, trustingly look to Jesus and his word. And I discovered something, and Shane and I and Adam were talking about this as we talked about 1 Corinthians. When Paul talks to the Corinthians and he says, I am called and you are called and my Lord is your Lord, he starts right from the outset of saying, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I'm a child of God, you're a child of God, and then that sets up the tone for him to address difficulties and problems and to confront sin and error. He doesn't launch right into the confrontation until he first establishes we're family. Because that's where we find unity. You see, if I go to you and say, hey, listen, you're my brother and Christ loves you and Christ loves me and I'm your brother, that really sets the tone if we've got to disagree, doesn't it? Whereas what happens so often in churches and in professing Christians, we go, hey, I got, a, I got a beef with you. I got a problem with you. And we, we already do it with a posture of we're foes and not family. You see, it's way easier for me to argue with Debbie when I don't see her as my wife. But when I look at her as my wife, even when we disagree... The longing of my soul is for us to be right together. By the way, and this is free for those of you that are early on in your marriage, my dad taught me one thing when we fight in marriage. Never, never threaten to abandon the marriage. No matter what you disagree about, no matter how bad it gets, and I can say that to you as dads and parents, no matter how bad it is, don't ever threaten that you're going to abandon your kids. And as a church, we should never threaten to abandon each other because Christ would never abandon us. So how can we not but be kept and unified? And very quickly in verse 12, look at it, we see Jesus' prayerful proclamation. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I was with them and I kept them, which means I also protected them. I guarded them. Have you ever wondered, well, what was he with them in, and what did he keep them from, and how did he protect them? Now, listen to me, okay? How does Jesus pray to a holy father and say, oh, holy father, keep them and unite them, and then Jesus says, father, I was with them, and I kept them, and I protected them from what? Pride. He kept them from pride. Do you remember when Peter made his boast and said, Lord, listen, if they all deny you, I won't deny you. And what does Peter, what does the Lord say? Oh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. 
Remember back in Matthew 16 when he says, I've got to go and die. And Peter takes him and says, hey, listen, when he first asked Peter, he says, he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter steps up. Hey, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Christ says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show this to you, but, but revelation came to you. And then he says, oh, and God, by the way, I don't like your plan. This gospel plan, I don't like it. And then he immediately goes from, you know, I'm this rock to get behind me, Satan. You talk about high highs and low lows. What about fear? Do you remember when they were in the boat? And the Sea of Galilee, and that storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep, and they wake Jesus up, and what do they say? Lord, don't you care that we perish or we're going to die? And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. And then he looks at the storm, and he says, enough, be still. And they're still. What about anger? When the guys go to Jesus and say, hey, these, this little group of imps that aren't on our inner circle, they're trying to cast out demons. And, and James and John say, can we pray down thunder? Does that not sound like the modern church of Canada, the United States? Hey, they're doing something and they're trying to be successful and it looks like they're better at it than we do. There must be something wrong with them. We're so accusatory. Jesus says, no, I was with them and I kept them and protected them from anger. What about questions? Lord, where are you going in John 14? What about competition? When they competed with each other, what about sin? When they sinned, what about Satan and the world and impatience and bitterness and loneliness and blindness and mourning and confusion and guilt and shame and failure? Jesus says, I was with them, I kept them, I protected them, but in the presence and the keptness and protection, he also empowered them because they cast out demons and they healed the sick and they proclaimed the gospel. He gifted them, he used them, he filled them and transformed them. He took the tax collector Matthew and made him a disciple. He took Simon the Zealot, who was an assassin for Judaism, and made him a disciple. He renews us and he cheers for us. He delights in us. He adopts us. Jesus prayed that his followers would be one, and he knew his followers would face many challenges. What about this? squabbles when James' mother tried to obtain the best thrones in the kingdom? What about modes of baptism? What about music? What about should you do the communion on the first of the month or every week? And all the stuff that we argue and bicker about. But Boyce tells us our Lord also knew Christians would break fellowship with one another over matters like mode of baptism, the color of the church bathroom. Every age of the church has known division. I once heard of a church that split because at a Sunday school picnic, the chairman of the deacons was reaching for the last piece of chicken, and another guy reached in and grabbed it first and said, God sovereignly ordained for me to have it, and ate it. And then the chairman of the deacons split the church because he thought that guy was rude. That's embarrassing, isn't it? When we're that petty... The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, for wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, that's unnatural and monstrous. Our Lord prayed that oneness would be maintained by the disciples being kept in the Father's holy name. Holy Father, protect them, the name you gave me. And so, this is why the psalmist commented and said in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. A.W. Tozer said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to one, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity, conscience, and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The more we know Christ, the more we draw near to him, the more we are drawn to one another. And while Christ prayed that the whole character of God be kept before his disciples, the emphasis is on the fatherhood of God. C.G. Moa, one time Lord Bishop of Durham said, in thy name, they were never to be allowed to wander out of that name, never to seek another name, one of their own imagining or developing, never to dream of safely or of home or for their souls anywhere, but within the revealed personal love and life of the Holy Father. So Jesus says to them, in your name I have kept them, in your name I have protected them, in your name. So that's why Scotty Smith says, the Father's love and relationship Jesus not only prayed for but gave his life for. A long way off, his father saw him, quoting Luke 15, 20. Filled with compassion, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Because of what Jesus did, this is how our father loves us every day. No exaggeration, no strings attached, no fine print. We, our, belong to the father. And by the way, you'll see this everywhere. And so for dads this morning, what do I want you to do? Do you pray for Jesus to protect and unify your family? Dads, will you step up and step in today and seek with God's help to be present with your kids? Will you seek to protect them in God's name? Will you proceed to pray over them? Dads, will you ask God to help you preserve your family, pray with them and over them and for your family and protect your family? Will you point them to Jesus? Will you give them a view of God and always submit to God's word? Will you speak to show them a unifying disposition of Christ with other Christians and the church of God? Because that's what Jesus did and does for us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Savior and God as Father, I beg of you to listen to Acts 4 again. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. I beg of you to behold and ponder and contemplate, to be astonished and smitten and speechless at the great love that Jesus has lavished on us. John Owen said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. So if you're here this morning and you don't know him, I beg of you to come to him. You'll get to God. Everybody in this room and online is going to get to God as judge. That's why he says, only one have I lost, and that was Judas. He didn't lose him, by the way. It was the idea that he was showing you, you know the opposite of holy father is when you meet a holy judge. Judas turned his back, and yet Judas sat under the preaching of Jesus and was still lost. So just because you're here at this church doesn't mean you're a Christian. You've got to know him and know his love. Will you turn to him? Christian, will you find your peace and joy by being kept in him and united with him? It's what will strengthen your marriage, resolve you as a dad, help you as a mom, strengthen you as families,
will bolster you up to walk with purity and singleness. It will help you if you've endured the sting of divorce or failure in marriage or in life. It's what will free you from addiction and what will give you hope to fight the fight today because Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them and unite them. Will you and I trust the protective, keeping, prayerful power of Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I beg of you once again that my friends and my family will have heard a better sermon than I could preach. Lord, I am inadequate and unable to describe you, for you are truly indescribable. But as we sing our closing song, as we get ready to go into Father's Day, and many will go to lunches and dinners and barbecues and boil lobster and all these things, which is right, and it gives you glory when we honor this calling and this office of fatherhood. But I pray that, Lord, today, every man and woman in this room, as a Christian, would know you as Holy Father. And if they are here this morning and they don't know you, or they're confused about you, they've heard of you, but they don't know if they are truly yours, that, Father, right now, you will quicken their heart, open their eyes, transform them and make them alive so that they can't help themselves but say, oh, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, fill us with your spirit, free us from the anger and chaos of the world, and may you get all the honor and glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.